Good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve at Trinity as lead pastor. I'm so glad that you are joining us this morning. And if you're in the building with us, I'm so glad that you came out. If you're watching online, I'm glad that you are joining us. If you're in the building, you're probably wondering, why am I watching you on a screen and not listening to you in person? And the truth is, is that earlier this week, I had a low risk level exposure to COVID. I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms. But just out of an abundance of caution, my family and I are staying home this Sunday. So we decided to pre-record this message for you. And if you're watching online, it's basically business as usual, except the, the room is empty right now. But however you're with us, I'm so glad that you are. And if you're visiting for the first time, let me extend a special welcome to you. And I hope that you'll come back and that uh, I will have the opportunity to meet you in person. You know, for my family and I, we've had a pretty big week. Um, we have, my wife and I have three daughters, 12, 9, and 6. And for most of their lives, they've been asking us for a dog. And my wife and I both love dogs, but we know what dogs mean. A lot of work, a lot of responsibility. And when our girls were younger, we knew that that would really fall on us. And so we've been kind of waiting for them to get older and, and waiting for the right time. And finally it happened. It was an early Christmas present. And this week they got their little puppy. And the puppy's name is Mickey, a name chosen uh, by our girls. And uh, he's eight weeks old and adorable and already ruling our home. And uh, he's some sort of a mix. Now, he's not a, we didn't get him from a, a breeder. We got him through a, uh, an organization that rescues dogs, adopts dogs, and, and, and then allows us to adopt them. And so we don't know a lot about really his breed or his mix. We've been told he's a mix of a Labrador and a Retriever. He looks a little bit like a Beagle to us. And, and other people that have seen him, other dog people, they have their own sort of suggestions and, and predictions about his, uh, his mix. And I've realized, though, that we could actually find out. And the reason that we know that we could find out uh, Mickey's mix, his breed, is because, um, you know, when you get a new dog, you start searching online for uh, what sort of food should we give him and how do we potty train him and how do we keep him from chewing our entire, you know, shoe collection up and things like that. And in the midst of our searching, uh, my wife's Facebook page figured out that we have a new dog. And so she's, you know how Facebook can be creepy. They start giving you ads for things that you feel like you've never even told anybody else you're interested in. Uh, we're already getting ads now for this thing called Dog DNA. And it's a special kit that you can get that allows you to take a little hair off the dog, I think, and mail it in. And, and humans do this too, of course. Maybe you've done this. There's Ancestry.com. And a lot of people are really interested in knowing where did I come from? Who did I come from? What's my heritage? What's my ethnicity? And those things matter to us because a lot of times it's in looking back at where we came from and who we came from that we know in some way who we are today. And as we start this December series called Hopes and Fears, we're going to begin right in Matthew chapter 1 with a passage that often probably gets skipped over, and it's a genealogy, and it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it shows us where Jesus came from and who Jesus, who Jesus came from. And the truth is that a lot of times genealogies are pretty boring. And if you've tried to read through the Old Testament, you, you know that there's like this long list of names and it's so humbling because you don't know how to pronounce half the names and it's so boring. You're kind of like, what is the point of this? And one of the things I love about genealogies is that it actually has a way of reminding us that the Bible was written by real people in, in real places at real times. And and these things are grounded in historical uh, evidence. And so right from the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
and the son of Abraham. Of course, we know that Jesus was the son of Mary and Joseph. So when it says the son of David and the son of Abraham, it's speaking of his lineage. It's, it's referencing his genealogy. And this word genealogy right here actually is the word Genesis. So it's kind of cool because the Old Testament starts with the book Genesis, which means beginnings. But Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, also leads with the word Genesis. And it's almost like we're meant to understand that where we get the beginning in Genesis, here in Matthew, in preparation for Jesus, it's a new beginning. Something new is happening that's going to change everything. Now, Jewish people kept genealogies like Jesus, extensive genealogies. It was very important in their culture because your genealogy established your heritage, your inheritance, your legitimacy, and your rights. Your heritage, your inheritance, your legitimacy, and your rights. So these things mattered. And even though reading through this list this morning might seem boring, what I want us to consider together is this, that there's three things about Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1 that makes it incredible. Three things that makes it remarkable. Three things that even makes it life-changing. Not just then, but now. And what we're going to learn together this morning is that the three things that make Jesus' genealogy incredible is who it includes, how it begins, and how it ends. So let's start first with who it includes. And let's read a little bit more of the genealogy beginning in verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. This is going all the way back uh, to the book of Genesis. Verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now you can see why reading these genealogies is not the most exciting part of the Bible. It's mostly just a challenge of not embarrassing yourself in trying to pronounce these names. But what's amazing about Jesus' genealogy is who it includes, because it includes five women. Now that maybe doesn't sound like a big deal to you, because of course we know there'd have to be women involved for there to be a genealogy. But back then it wasn't normative for them to include women in a genealogy. It was almost always just the names of the men because they represented the head of the household in a very patriarchal society. And so the fact that Matthew decides to include five women, four women from the Old Testament, and then also at the end, Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's pretty remarkable. The only times in the Old Testament that the genealogies include women's names is usually to further strengthen um, or support the argument for the purity of that lineage. When a woman's name was useful to further strengthening the fact that this is a good lineage, these are good people that they come from, then and only then would they include the woman's names. But here, Matthew includes four names from the Old Testament, and I can assure you that none of these names help the purity of this lineage. Let's look a little closer. Uh, the first name that we see is this woman named Tamar, and this is a story that is not well known, but Tamar was a, was a widow. Her husband passed, and not only was she a widow, but she was childless. She had no son. And this was incredibly uh, significant back then because, unfortunately, in, in that culture at that time, a woman's status, standing, and security 
in society was established by really her relationship with her nearest male relatives, specifically either her father, her husband, or her son. And Tamar has neither. And there was a sort of very strange um, custom back then that when, um, when a woman was widowed, it was the responsibility of her deceased husband's brother to give her a child, to lay with her and give her a child so that she could have a son. And it was really an act of support for her so that she would have uh, this male uh, heir in her life so that she could pass things off to, but also that could protect her and support her as he grows. So it was a responsibility. But through, I guess, just for the lack of getting into the details, through deception, the brothers of Tamar's uh, deceased husband refused to give her a son. So she ends up in this unenviable position, and then she turns to her own deceit, and she tricks her father-in-law into being with her so that she can have a son. And she has two sons, Perez and Zerah. And this story, which at very best is morally ambiguous, uh, is right here in Jesus' lineage. It's amazing. And doesn't it feel like one of those stories that maybe you would try to hide in your family's history, in your family's past, but it's right here, and Tamar gets a mention by name. And, and, and most believe that Tamar was not actually a Jewish woman. So here you have a Gentile in the lineage of a Jewish man who has this really uh, very difficult story. The, the next one that we come across is even uh, more difficult, Rahab. Tamar disguised herself to be a woman who would sell herself for a living, but Rahab, that's who she actually was. She was, uh, that's what she did for a living in the city of Jericho. Uh, and when the, when the Hebrews came to attack and take the city of Jericho, she was the one who let the two Hebrew spies hide in the roof of her house. And they said to her, if you do X, Y, and Z, then we will protect you and save you when we return and destroy this city. And that's exactly what they did. And she lived through that attack because she saved the lives of these two Hebrew spies. But everything about her life up until that point was not wonderful, was not worth celebrating. And here she is, the father of Boaz, who ends up being the very husband of the next person that we're going to talk about, who is Ruth. Now, Ruth was also a widow, experienced tremendous loss. She was also not a, uh, a Jew, not an Israelite. She was a Moabite, who historically they were enemies of the Israelites. She lost her husband, and, and she went with her mother-in-law back to Israel, where she lived with her and became a foreigner. So you have another woman who's a widow, a Gentile, a foreigner. And then we get to the fourth woman in the story. We don't even have her name. It just refers to her as the wife of Uriah. Now, now her name is Bathsheba. She is a Jewish woman. However, her husband, Uriah, was a Hittite. So she was married to someone who wasn't a Jew. So again, even the fact that, that it includes not her name, but her relationship to Uriah points out the Gentile role in the lineage of Jesus. And Bathsheba, earlier this summer, we did a series of the life of David, and Bathsheba was the woman that King David saw bathing, and he chose her and brought her to the castle, and he was with her, and then she got pregnant, and then, and then he ended up having her husband. It's just a terrible story, a mess of a story, and here she is included. And then the last of the five is Mary, who we'll talk much more about next week. But what's incredible about these four women included in the lineage of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior and our Messiah, is that all of them, I think, in a real way, represent fears that every one of us can relate to. Our series is called Hopes and Fears, and 
Hopes and fears are basically the opposite side of the same coin. Whatever you hope for, you also fear not getting that thing. So if you're hoping to get uh, something for Christmas, your fear is that you won't get that thing. If you're hoping that someone will notice you, then your fear is, is that they won't notice you. And hopes and fears are really the opposite sides of the same coins. And each of these women represents a fear that I think we can all relate to. I want to go through them here. And the first one, Tamar. You think about Tamar. She lost her husband. Uh, her husband's brothers would not do their responsibility to give her hope for the future. So Tamar's fears must have revolved around the feeling of being abandoned and left behind. That life had passed her by that her best days were behind her. I think her fear was that she would be forgotten. Tamar wasn't forgotten. She's remembered. She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. This, this, this woman was chosen to be in this genealogy. Rahab, I'm sure she feared that her mistakes defined her, whereas Tamar thought her best days are behind her. I'm sure that Rahab felt like my worst days define me. And I'm no better than my worst mistake. And not only do my mistakes define me, but they can destroy me. I can never be free of my past. It's this fear of being ruined. And maybe you're listening this morning, and these are the fears that you're struggling with, that you've been forgotten, uh, that your best days are behind you, that you are ruined, that the worst things you've done define you. But when Matthew chooses to include these names in this genealogy, it's there to remind us that no one is beyond the redemptive reach of Jesus Christ. The third woman in this story is Ruth. You know, her, she made good choices, really, not bad choices. She made an incredible choice to go with her mother-in-law back to a land where she would be a foreign widow. But maybe she had the fear of my good choices, which I've done, the things I've done that I feel have been uh, to honor other people, to honor God, they've gone unseen. And they've gone unrewarded. And she's in here because God notices us. He notices the things that, he, that we do, and he rewards those who are faithful. And then there's Bathsheba. And with Bathsheba, I think her greatest fear is that someone else's choice would define her. See, sometimes we're afraid that our choices will define us, but sometimes things are done to us that cause us to fear that that person's choice to hurt me will define me. The fear of always being the victim and never having victory in our life. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And yet, when we get to Matthew chapter 1, the new beginning... We find every single one of these names listed in the most important genealogy of all time. One of the commentaries says this, The lineage of Jesus, the one that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles, and Jesus will be Savior of all of them. Matthew knew what he was doing here. He wanted us to realize that Jesus' lineage was full of broken, flawed, imperfect people. But the gospel tells us that no one is beyond the reach of God and that God delights to use the brokenness of our lives, the mess of our lives, the struggle and the failure. He loves to redeem. He loves to forgive. He loves to restore. He loves to breathe new life and give purpose to us. And we see these names in here, and it reminds us of that. And it's true for you, too, this morning. Wherever you're at, I want you to know that you can be included in this story. The inheritance, the rights, the status, the standing that Jesus has, it can be ours. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. There's room for you in the story of Jesus, who it includes. 
The second thing that we see is not just who it includes, but how it begins. Let's look at verse 1 again real quick. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. This is significant, these phrases, the son of David and the son of Abraham. It's establishing Jesus as a legitimate candidate to be the Messiah. He's descended from David so he can sit on the throne of David. He's descended from Abraham so he can claim the promises that were spoken to Abraham by God in Genesis chapter 12. Matthew is demonstrating Jesus' legal claim to the throne and his legal descent from Abraham. But that's not the only thing that I want us to notice about how it begins. I want us to also notice that it starts with the name of the person. It's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It starts with the name of the person who it ends with, who it leads to. And that's very unusual. Normally in recording a genealogy, you would never record the last person's name first. You would just start with the oldest person and work your way down through the different ancestors, through the lineage until you get to. But this time, Matthew wants us to know up front, it's Jesus. This is his genealogy. You know, I was studying it. This is what I learned, that in Jewish tradition, the reason why they did lineages the way they did in that order, from oldest to youngest and not the other way around, is because in Jewish tradition, it was your ancestors that shaped your story and determined your value, worth, and significance. So they came first. It was very, very, very important in the Jewish culture that you knew that your significance, your place in the story, your value, and your worth was shaped and determined by those who had come before you. You stood on the shoulders of those who, without them, you wouldn't know who you are. Without them, you wouldn't have your story, and so you depend on them. But Jesus is mentioned first, and here's why. Don't miss this. Because even his ancestors depend on him for their value, for their worth, for their significance, for their place in the story. Jesus doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. Those people matter because of who their story was connected to. Jesus gives this to them. They do not give it to him. And listen, this is not just true for them. It's also true for you and for me. Our story has to start and end with Jesus. What we do does not give significance to Jesus, but it's Jesus who gives significance to us. It's our relationship with him that establishes our status, our standing before the Father, that gives us value and worth and purpose. And it's Jesus' story, listen, it's Jesus' story that shapes our story. There's so many things out there competing to shape your story right now. There's so many stories you tell yourself. We're always observing and interpreting We're always seeing things and telling ourselves what we think it means. And until we allow our story to be shaped most uh, significantly, shaped primarily by Jesus' story, we're always going to be living some false version of who God created us to be. But Jesus' story gives meaning, shape, and purpose to ours. And then the last thing I want us to consider from this genealogy this morning is not just who it includes and not just how it begins, but how it ends. And I'm going to invite the band that's in the room to come up to the stage right now and get ready because in just a minute we're going to stand and we're going to sing this beautiful Christmas hymn in response to God's word. But I want us to see first how this genealogy ends. In verse 16, we'll pick it up. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and we'll talk a lot more next week about Joseph and about Mary. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, 
who is called Christ. Last verse of this passage. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew captures the lineage of Jesus in these groups of 14 generations, both because it was, um, it was a tool to help people remember, but also it had significance in the sort of the number that he chose here. But what I want us to see at the end is that this genealogy, and this is going to sound obvious at first, and it didn't hit me until I started really studying this passage, this genealogy is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And why that's so important is this. Who has genealogies? Who has a lineage? It's humans. It's people like you. It's people like me. God doesn't have a genealogy. God doesn't have a lineage. God's eternal. He's eternal. He's he's existed from eternity past to eternity future. He didn't come from anyone. There was nothing and no one before God. So the fact that Matthew is able to record a genealogy for Jesus Christ means something incredible. That God decided to descend from on high and become one of us. To become just the humility of Jesus Christ that he would submit himself to the human experience. That he would submit himself to being wrapped in flesh. That Jesus would submit himself to having a recorded genealogy. It's incredible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he shouldn't have had a genealogy like we just read because he's God. But he chose to make himself, allow himself to become human, the word become flesh, so that he could be with us, be for us, be one of us. He enters into our story. And I just want us to reflect um, this morning before we sing on the humility of Jesus Christ, that he would allow himself to have a lineage a genealogy, that he would place himself right in history, that he would connect himself to the lives of Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba. And listen, the men in the list too, lots of terrible mistakes with them as well. A lot of brokenness there. But that he would connect himself to broken families, to broken lives, that he would allow his lineage to be marked and in some ways uh, made impure because of the people before, that he would submit himself to that, speaks of his humility and his willingness and his grace. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, it's beautiful because of who it includes, sinners like you and like me. Because of how it begins, it's all about Jesus. He gives us our significance, our value, and our worth. And because of how it ends. Jesus Christ, God, became man, submitted himself to the will of the Father, to the human experience, to being born as a baby, a helpless baby, the Son of God in the body of a helpless baby, reliant upon others to care for him, to provide for him. Jesus did all these things so that he could be our Messiah, our Savior, and our Lord. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for the truth that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and that He came in the flesh and that He humbled Himself and that He didn't just live the human life but that He died the death in our place, paying the price for all of our sin, all the things that we've done against You, all of our rebellion. Jesus, we thank You that You came to rescue the rebels who were rebelling against You. You came to love those who were rejecting You. You came to save those who were hurting you. And even as you breathed your final breath, your prayer was, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And we thank you, God, for the truth of your word this morning. I pray that you would plant it in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would breathe on it, that you would do a work in us, that we would realize that none of us have gone too far, that we can't be a part of this story, that we would realize that everything that we need is found in you, and that our hearts would be melted and moved by the humility and willingness of Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.